Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Ellen Sentner joins me now in studio. Ellen, always a pleasure. Thanks for being here. Trade wars and the U.S. Uh, economy. Have you produced some kind of model that looks at what the U.S. economy would do if this trade war really sticks and gets worse? Yeah, so I think first um, we do expect um, these trade tensions, let's say. I think war is a little inflammatory, but it, but it certainly catches the attention more when you use the word war. But uh, we are in an escalatory phase, okay? There's no denying that. Um, And we've now seen the first round of $36 billion in tariffs go into place. Um, The questions that I get are, I thought this was supposed to hurt the economy. We've got 4% GDP in the second quarter that economists are tracking. Uh, What gives? It must not matter for the economy. And that's absolutely the wrong way to look at this. These first $36 billion that have gone into place uh, are hitting intermediate goods, capital goods. Guess what matters for the U.S.? Consumer goods. And it's the next round, the 10% on $200 billion in Chinese goods, that are really going to hit consumer goods. And do you think that when we raise prices on consumer goods in the U.S. because of tariffs, that consumers are just going to spend as much as they did before, that we really don't care that prices are going up? That's just not the case. So when we look at it, tariffs... Uh, you know, in you know, just one at a time, right? Now, if I just look at the economic impact of the tariffs that have gone that went went into place on Friday, um, it doesn't look like that much that you shave off the U.S. economy. But you start to build in the second round impacts to supply chains, the unknown impacts to financial conditions, and you start to pile on the next round and the next round and the next round. At some point, investors are going to say this is too much. This is changing the global growth story. And then the financial conditions piece of this escalates. At the time when you have unemployment at the levels, I guess, okay, it increased to 4%, but that was because so many people came back into into the workforce. Where's the positive, where's the benefit from these trade, uh, okay, confrontations, I won't say war. Where, where does the benefit come in? Because if the if the economy is already working and you're looking at that 4% GDP number that you mentioned, where's the benefit to this trade confrontation? Well, I think that, that um, trade talks in general should be something that are constantly ongoing between countries. The condensed timeline that we're on, and it has been very disruptive. Um, in the way it's almost like someone just turned the light on and said, oh, these, th- this trade situation in the global economy is, is unfair. Let's change it tomorrow. And it's um, self-inflicted. Right. But it's, it's, I, I, I won't argue with the need for looking closely at trade agreements and trade among countries, and that should be an open-ended conversation that we're having. Um, what's What can be very disruptive is trying to change it overnight, when, as you point out, we've already got a tight labor market. We've already got a very low unemployment rate. We don't have a large uh, manufacturing sector. Uh, we don't have a lot of workers to attract back to manufacturing or to retrain for manufacturing. It takes time to open idle 
factories. It takes time to build new factories. You don't just turn on the manufacturing engine overnight in the U.S. And so what does that mean? That means that that these trade negotiations uh, on such a condensed timeline can create even more inflationary pressures than we've already got from tight labor markets and late cycle dynamics. And what happens then? Then you run into the risk that it begs a more aggressive monetary policy response from the Fed as they're seeing price pressures in the U.S. from tariffs, uh, and that's very difficult to deal with, right? Policy or rates that are higher in the U.S. than they otherwise would have been. That is, to me, the biggest risk. And it's not as if the world is standing still while this is happening. Correct. I mean, Shinzo Abe, prime minister of Japan, he is going to be in Brussels on Wednesday to sign a trade accord with the European Union. You have, uh, I believe, a meeting between German Chancellor Angela Merkel and the Chinese premier, uh, prime minister. uh, That'll be today, actually, uh, in Berlin. And the topic there is trade investment. Nothing is standing still just because the United States wants to impose tariffs on imported goods from China, plus wants to at least seemingly renegotiate NAFTA, and that hasn't gone anywhere. What's the worst case scenario for the U.S. economy if all of these things come to pass? Well, I think the the, the long term worst case scenario for the U.S. economy would be that the rest of the the world and other global leaders move on without us, and so we become the odd man out instead of the leader among all of these groups, trade groups, uh, global groups, uh, just where we sit on the global stage. Of course, that is the longer term risk uh, because trade negotiations can be very sensitive. It's one reason why they typically take some time to play out. Uh, And so that that I do think And with a change of government, I'm just thinking of Mexico, with a change of government in Mexico, which may be more adversarial when it comes to dealing with the United States. Right. There are are a lot of, um, you know, I think that I can't remember a time uh, and, uh, you know, I'm 47 years old. I've been practicing economics for over 20 years. Uh, and I cannot remember a time that politics mattered so much in the global economy. That, and, and politics, it's not just for the U.S. everywhere. Politics are a wild card. Uh, for just about every economy, and politics are playing out globally um, and create another layer of uncertainty of exactly where does the U.S. end up um, in this, in these tit for tats. Now, I'm sure you've read the reports about increasing logistics costs in the United States. I'm sure you've read the reports of input costs going up for many manufacturers. Uh, you've also read, I'm sure, about what happens to our agricultural exports that may be displaced by exports from places such as Brazil and uh, Argentina. What do you see if this continues? What do you see happening in the U.S. economy? Well, I think we'll see some rebalancing. Right? We already know, and you've, you've touched on a lot of it, businesses are uh, have already been uh, exploring uh, alternative sourcing. Um, and it's not just the U.S. The, the rest of the global economy will be doing that. They'll Businesses buy things from broadly, someplace else. Right. They might buy things from somewhere else. So there's a rebalancing that will go on. And I'm not saying that when the dust settles, we won't come out ahead. Um, but there's near-term pain that will have to be digested. Um, just sourcing uh, new supply chains costs businesses money. And they have to either eat that on the margin or pass that on to the end user. 
Either way, it's a lose-lose situation in the near term. Um, that doesn't mean it won't be a long-term gain once all this rebalancing occurs. Um, but it's something, it's a reality of this late cycle economy that we're in that we are the, that we are now having to deal with. In 30 seconds, are you advising people based on your analysis to change the way they view investing right now until the dust settles? Well, I think that uh, on our wealth management side of the business, uh, which sits on a $2 trillion purse, you know, they've been um, advising their clients uh, to aggressively manage cash. And that's not just that, that that almost has nothing to do with the trade tension. It has to do with where we are in the cycle um, and volatile markets that occur in the cycle. Um, uh, Mike Wilson, our chief U.S. equity strategist on the institutional security side, where I sit, um, is looking at, you know, uh, no more upside driven by uh, earnings after the third quarter. So it just makes for a difficult time as we we view as we start to view the second half of the year. Many thanks. Ellen Zentner, Morgan Stanley, chief U.S. economist, giving us her views on the U.S. economy based on trade confrontations. A war? Not yet. With us now, in our London studios, Brian Class of the London School of Economics, fellow in comparative politics in their Department of Government. <clears throat> Some of you will know uh, Professor Class for his outstanding work out on Twitter in just pointing out research topics as we look at a time of authoritarianism. And that gets to his wonderful book, The Despots' Cla- uh, Accomplices, is, well, um, there was a lot classian this weekend in the literature. I thought of you this weekend. A lot of people have come around to your study of democracy in liberalism versus authoritarianism. Is it overdone? Is it overdone done about the president and his relationship with Mr. Putin? No, I don't think it is. I think we've got this global moment. There's been 12 consecutive years where the world has become less democratic. That is now creeping into the West. You have Poland, Hungary, some Italian populism flirting with authoritarianism. And then also across the Atlantic in the United States, where, where Trump not only mimics the behaviors of authoritarian leaders, but also admires them and, and has praised Virtually every authoritarian leader under the sun, from President Xi to Duterte in the Philippines, uh, Putin in, in Moscow, um, and then you know sort of has taken a much harsher tack on America's historic democratic allies, whether it be EU or NATO members, and that's going to be on display this week as Trump arrives in in the UK, moves on to Brussels, and then meets with uh, Putin in Helsinki. I mean, he's going to go to Helsinki, and this is you know your. Your area, the the basic theme, and Kevin Cerulli pushed back on this today, is people say Mr. Putin will be hugely prepared and Mr. Trump will be less prepared to be kind. Um, How does that play in terms of your study? Well, I think it's a major risk, and that's why I think this one-on-one meeting is dangerous. It's highly unorthodox. (laughs) Uh, Past foreign policy advisors to past presidents would not allow it. Hugely choreographed. Yeah. And and on top of this, you have this major risk. I mean, we had a dress rehearsal for this in Singapore with the Trump-Kim meeting. That is falling apart very quickly, where Trump prematurely declared a win, and now his Secretary of State is trying to do the cleanup. And, you know, Kim was very prepared for that meeting because that's what their foreign policy revolves around. Putin is going to be the same. Um, and so I think there's a real risk that Trump makes serious concessions to Putin in a sort of good-natured summit and then right. ends up getting played. <clears throat> 
Um, but we have, you know, I think the, the bigger picture here is that there is a, a momentous shift in geopolitics underfoot and has been for the last year or two. I mean, people talk about black swan risk, the sort of unpredictable, unforeseen risk. This one is a highly predictable risk. You have the president consistently attacking NATO allies, attacking NATO, attacking the European Union, and praising Vladimir Putin. And it would be a well, major, major geopolitical seismic shock if American foreign policy ended the transatlantic how, relationship how as we you, know it. How do you respond to the morning's ur- uh, urgency? Eli Lake in Bloomberg Opinion writing this up beautifully, that the real fear is Mr. Trump will bargain Syria and Crimea. It's almost like a game of risk when we were kids. Three on two, Central America. There are huge risks. So last year, you know, Putin basically crafted a deal last year that involved a de-escalation zone in Syria. That de-escalation zone is a misnomer because it's where a lot of the heaviest fighting with the Russian troops is happening right now. But Trump was able to claim a win and look optically like he was the deal maker. That might happen again with Crimea or with Syria. And the problem with bargaining away Crimea, it's not just about that piece of territory. It's the principle, which is basically the linchpin of international security after World War II, that you cannot change borders by force. And if Trump acknowledges that Putin can, it upends everything we know about international security and all bets yeah. are off from that can point. A, can a forth. future president, either Republican or Democrat, walk back from Trump if he makes a decision on Crimea? He could or she could, but it's a it's a real problem because the, the word of the United States matters in diplomacy. This is one of the things that I think is, is a consequential shift in the Trump administration, too, is that it has torn up so many deals well, of his predecessor that you start to have this question about, are they a good faith yeah. deal maker in diplomacy? And the question going forward is, will Trump continue to basically work to blow up the international okay. order? Brian Kless, thank you so much. We're the London School of Economics, the despots' accomplices is accomplice rather is is uh, a book our topic is amazon amazon.com and if we can imagine a world without amazon the shares of amazon.com are up more than 45 percent so far this year the company has more than half a million employees and our next guest matt winkler bloomberg editor-in-chief emeritus says this is a value stock matt always a pleasure thanks for coming into the studio why do you believe that amazon should be viewed as a value stock. It's good to be with you, Pim. Um, Since its inception, Amazon has committed itself to greater customer efficiency in everything it does. And it started with books, of course, um, and within a year of going public, its market capitalization exceeded the number one bookseller, Barnes & Noble. By 2015, uh, it exceeded the market capitalization of Walmart, which is the largest retailer in the world. And then this year, um, if you think about all the industries Amazon has entered, um, starting with books, of course, continuing with retail, which is uh, broad and vast, uh, Walmart. Uh, It's in the business that IBM is in. It's in the business that Oracle's in. It's in the business that Netflix is in. And it's in the business that UPS is in, as in logistics. And market capitalization of Amazon exceeds all of those companies combined as of uh, just a month ago. So you put all that together, Amazon's been very consistent about relentlessly innovating 
uh, from day one. And that relentless innovation is all about focusing on the customer, something that Jeff Bezos, the uh, founder and CEO and chairman, uh, has said, in fact, told us uh, right after the company went public in 1997, what I care about is maximizing the customer yeah. experience. And so you put that together, um, that's why most of the analysts, all but one, um, on uh, Bloomberg, uh, surveyed by Bloomberg, recommend either buying the stock or keeping it, because what they see is a future of greater innovation, right. more so than any other company. And I forgot to mention that, you know, of all the publicly traded companies in the world, Amazon commits more money, equivalent money, to what we call R&D than any other company. Yeah. Matt, this is a spectacular article. I just put it out on Twitter, folks. I'll be blunt. It's without question the read of the day. Matt, you, you go back to the original prospectus, May 14th of 1997. And then at the end of the article, you have a stunning quote, which says it all. If their market was the Empire State Building, they're on the third floor. And what makes it so trenchant, folks, is Matt Winkler was once on the first floor with a Rolodex on a wooden desk trying to start a news company. Were you surprised, Matt, that you heard they're on the third floor of their future? Um, I thought that was a particularly good anecdote, which came from one of our more distinguished uh, colleagues who works in Bloomberg Intelligence and knows far more than I do about technology. And um, he framed it that way. Um, so that every every person can appreciate what we're talking about here, which is that Amazon uh, has unlimited expectations about what it can do about itself. And increasingly, its shareholders uh, recognize that. And that's why I did say that, in effect, makes it a value stock. I mean, it sort of defies all the conventions of Graham right. and Dodd. It's not Graham and Dodd, exactly. Well, it, it, it is. I mean, if you think about it intellectually, it is in the sense that, uh, you know, he, he Graham and Dodd, both of them, would say, uh, by all the conventional measures they had, uh, this is what a value stock is. Well, but if we put it on fast forward and take ourselves into the 21st century, which is where we are now, of course, right. I think they would appreciate what Bezos has been doing, which is constantly thinking about what can <clears throat> I do to make the customer okay. happier. Okay, you once sent me to a dinner. You don't know this, Matt. I mean, Reto did it on the Amex, but you don't know this, Matt. But you sent me to a dinner once with a guy named Eisner of Disney. And Michael Eisner said something that I think I've heard from you. It's not only the innovation and the positive things you do, it's what you don't do. In your research on Jeff Bezos, what's the thing that Jeff Bezos is not doing every day? So he, I don't think he ever thinks about, uh, you know, what do I do with the dividend or how do I beat you know, the earnings per share. I don't think he ever thought about that in the first, you know, decade or two of the company's existence. Um, not for once. I mean, he managed to do it ultimately. But uh, in the uh, life of Amazon, most of those years, most of those quarters, Jeff Bezos never once thought about the things that most CEOs are obsessed with, which is how do I beat the earnings estimates uh, from quarter to quarter. Um, you know, and just to put it in perspective, let's compare him to another company that was considered 
you know, wonderful in the 90s, and that was General Electric. And every quarter, it beat uh, the analyst uh, estimates. But look at where GE is today. Um, sort of nowhere, uh, to say the least. Mm. Whereas Amazon wasn't thinking that way uh, from day one. Matt, Amazon and its focus on customer service, can they bring that same focus to other industries such as health insurance, health care? Well, it would seem so because, you know, if you think of where they started with books and they encountered a great deal of hostility from the traditional folks who bought books, uh, they were customers, by the way, um, and eventually, you know, Amazon won over all the diehard antagonists um, who, who didn't like what Amazon was doing, and that was just books. And then Amazon very quickly uh, becomes a retailer um, of everything, uh, which is why it's called the Everything Store. Um, that defies sort of conventional wisdom that a company can sell anything and everything and do it better than all the traditional retailers. And that's exactly what Amazon did. And it did it in the space where you had these giants and that's why its market capitalization took off. So the answer to your question is, of course, I think they can do it. They've proven they can do it. It's what they're about. Um, you know, and they start with the right, seems to me, focus, which is what can we do to improve the customer's experience? And that's very consistent. And just give you 10 seconds. That seems ironic in a world where that's what you're supposed to do with every business. Yeah. I mean, you know, uh, you could always say better lucky than smart, but I would say Amazon is lucky and smart. Well done. Thanks very much. Uh, Matt Thank Winkler, you. Bloomberg Editor-in-Chief Emeritus, talking about Amazon.com, how it is a value stock. Yeah. President Donald Trump is scheduled to make his selection for the Supreme Court known at 9 p.m. Eastern Daylight Time today. And we will, of course, cover that live. Here to tell us more about this appointment is Greg Storr, our Supreme Court reporter. Greg, always a pleasure to speak with you and learn what's going on. I have a question having to do with whoever or whomever, rather, is uh, selected and perhaps uh, approved by the Senate to uh filled the seat vacated by uh, Justice Anthony Kennedy. What is the likelihood that people change their minds once they become a you know, a, 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 an associate on the Supreme Court? Well, Pim, if you had asked me that question 30 years ago, I would say there's a decent likelihood people do change. And you look at a justice like David Souter, um, who was touted as a conservative when he joined the court and then shifted rather quickly to the left. Uh, nowadays, however, the, both parties, and especially the Republicans, have gotten very, very good at picking the type of justice who will be a reliable vote for them down the road. We don't see as much shift uh, these days. And in the case of Justice Gorsuch, uh, Donald Trump's first appointee, he very quickly asserted himself as the kind of conservative uh, justice that uh, the president and his supporters envision him him to be. And, um, you know, I, I expect we'll have the same thing with this nominee and they will probably be reliable votes going forward. So would, you don't subscribe to the notion that the Supreme Court follows public opinion? There is a certain 
uh, a, a sense in which that is true. <laughs> Absolutely. The, the court does, as a real general matter, have, have a sense of the public sentiment and the polls. Uh, you know, and we are, we are potentially going to have a very, very conservative Supreme Court, and maybe that will test the, the, the notion that uh, justices cannot change. But you know, this list of people that Donald Trump is, is choosing from is a list put together by the Federalist Society. It has been vetted to a much greater extent than, to go back to Justice Souter, that appointment was uh, some, some uh, three decades ago. Uh, and so the chances that somebody will actually uh, move significantly to the le- left are much less than uh, they used to be. Greg, thank you so much for taking time with us today before all this excitement. Noah Feldman, folks, and you'll see this, it's not out yet, but uh, Noah Feldman, the great Harvard uh, columnist for Bloomberg, Greg, uh, uh, mentions the four candidates. One's the insider, one's the outsider, etc. And then there is Judge Barrett, who, to be blunt, Greg, he raves about. Can they forget that she's a conservative? I mean, is it do they actually look at their credentials versus their politics anymore? Well, they they look at the credentials, sure, but um, I, I think the politics are much more important. Now, Judge Barrett is uh, would be a very interesting choice. She is the least experienced. She is the youngest. She's only 46. And she's the only woman on the list of four that uh, it, it seems are, are the president's finalists. She has also, uh, as an academic, as a law professor at Notre Dame, written some things that are going to get a lot of attention. She's made very clear she has a a personal opposition to abortion. Uh, She has certainly raised questions about whether she would uh, vote to uphold Roe v. Wade, and I I would say strongly suggested she would not do that. Uh, She, in that sense, uh, might be the most alarming to Democrats and liberal groups. She could potentially be the most dangerous justice from their standpoint uh, and the one who, w- who would serve the longest. So there will be, uh, you know, cross-cutting uh, 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 factors that will uh, be up front if she does indeed get the nomination. Greg Storr, is there going to be anything different this time around in the sense that there are going to be many challenges to existing decisions, whoever is uh, nominated to fulfill Anthony Kennedy's seat, that you could see a big public reaction that will change the dynamic in Washington? It's a great question, Pim. I I don't know the answer to that. Um, Democrats are certainly trying to make the case that Roe v. Wade is at stake, um, and they have a a pretty good argument there, uh, given that you have four justices right now uh, still on the court who have at least voted to uphold significant restrictions on abortion rights. Um, you know, that's that's obviously a huge factor that hasn't been been at issue previously in quite the same way. Um, you know, traditionally, this has been an issue where Republicans have cared a lot more about the Supreme Court than Democrats have. Uh, again, as we see the court now potentially becoming a truly conservative court, that might also change and that might uh, be a factor in the November election. Um, but that all remains to be seen. And it might matter a little bit who who the president nominates. There are some people who like Judge Barrett who might be uh, you know, raise more red flags and be more of a target for Democrats than uh, a couple of the other nom- potential nominees. 
who is the uh, the next uh, justice uh, associate justice who you believe will uh, will leave the bench? Well, certainly Justice Ginsburg, who is 85, uh, Justice Breyer, who just turned 80, um, both liberals are people we look to because they are the, the, the oldest justices. Uh, it, it seems very clear that Justice Ginsburg in particular is not going anywhere if – um, as long as Donald Trump is president. Uh, so the question will be, can, can, can her health, um, uh, can she maintain her health and, and her ability to do the job? And the mm-hmm. same thing to a lesser extent for Justice Breyer. The, the one that uh, we might look at as a potential uh, retirement to give Donald Trump another seat would be Justice Thomas, but he's only 70 and could easily serve for another decade. Yeah. Uh, Greg, is there any strategy to the president's thinking in that he says, I'm going to pick Judge A of A, B, C, D, and keep on the burner, Judge C, D, or, you know, whatever? I, I mean, is there, a, is there a two-step process here? Yeah, there, there has been some talk about doing that with Judge Barrett and, and leaving her uh, available if Justice Ginsburg retires. Yeah. Um, in part because she's a woman. It would be a woman replacing a woman. And, and if Justice Ginsburg leaves, perhaps there's a, you know, a, a, a more of a call for, for a woman. And also because she is the least experienced. She is a Donald Trump appointee. She's only been on the federal appeals court for about eight months or so, and it would let her get a little more seasoning yeah. and uh, well, you know, perhaps make a small, stronger case for her confirmation. Know, Greg, Greg we're, we're advantaged by your exceptional abilities. I should point out that uh, Mr. Uh, Storr went to a law school in the Charles River in Boston, in Cambridge. But, but Greg, between you and Noah Feldman, I mean, the columnist, Professor Feldman, raves about his fellow clerk at the court. Do guys like you care that Professor Noah Feldman raves about Barrett? Sure. And it's certainly, you know, this is the sort of thing that uh, if she gets the nomination, uh, you know, Republicans are going to be holding up Professor Feldman as, look, here is, you know, somebody who disagrees with her on a lot of stuff, but says she is um, highly qualified and and has, yeah. a, has a great mind. That will absolutely matter. And it mattered when Neil Gorsuch was, was nominated. One of the people who, who yeah. supported him strongly was Neil Katyal, who was a the top Supreme Court lawyer yeah. in the Obama administration and who ended up arguing the case against the, the Trump travel ban, uh, you know, that was held up. So, yes, those things will matter. They matter a little bit in terms of the, the politics of it. And they matter, you know, for people who, who do think that qualifications matter, that you can't just throw anybody on the court and that, uh, you know, even people who are old school and think you ought to vote to confirm somebody if they are qualified, even if you don't agree with them on on a lot of issues. Greg Storr, what do you believe to be some of the landmark cases that the court will face next term? Well, right now, we don't have a whole lot of landmark cases. Um, I I think the issue of partisan gerrymandering is very likely to come back. There's a case out of North Carolina that uh, it seems teed up for consideration later in the term. a lot of abortion restrictions out there. Uh, That could certainly uh, come up very soon. And this whole issue of uh, uh, discrimination on the basis of sexual orientation and whether people have a have a uh, religious or free speech right to say I don't want to um, you know participate in a gay wedding that issue is coming back to the court as well. Thank you very much, uh, Greg Store, our yeah, uh, Bloomberg uh, Supreme Court reporter, and of course we'll be uh, covering that uh, live at yes. uh, 9 p.m. Eastern Daylight Time when President yeah. Donald Trump is scheduled to uh, announce his selection. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. 
Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio. 